Welcome back to another episode of the podcast Student by a Software Engineer. I'm your host, Perry, and boy, do we have a guest. We got Yerun on the show. Yerun, how are you? I am good. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing very good. Thank you. Um, it's usually these kind of moments where when I get to talk to at least a founder from a product that is not only available in your country, but it's also like an international-ish product at the end of the day. So not only I want to dive into that, I want to dive into how you got to where you are today. I want to dive into what was the hardship of getting to where you are today and also all the accomplishments and all the satisfying moments. But before I get too deep into that, though, for the people and a bit of context, you know, what's your name, where are you from, and what you've been up to lately? So I'm, uh, I'm Jeroen Korthout. I'm a co-founder and CEO of Salesflare, uh, and I'm based in Antwerp, Belgium. And uh, lately, we've been launching a lot of cool stuff at Salesflare. Uh, we just keep uh, improving stuff. It's uh, a lot of cool new product stuff, but also content, and just very exciting to to keep building things. And especially when I like to say how you have the building stuff, of course, but then there's multiple different factors as well. Not only even in terms of, like marketing, but also making like the right product decision at the end, but also like what kind of influence it has on people's daily lives. Those are all questions, I guess, not only as a founder, but maybe as somebody who's very involved with the product has to deal with at the end of the day. So thank you again so much for being on the show. Yeah, those are definitely all important questions. It's not just it's not just uh, the product or even just a feature is the way that appears to people, the way they're going to use it, how fast it is, how well they understand it, our documentation around it, videos, how we present it on the site. The whole experience uh, is extremely important. And one thing that I can say is probably Salesflare was not step number one in your life, I guess. I think this is probably step maybe 1064. As in, there has been a lot of stuff that has built up before you got to what you get to do today. So I am always fascinated by, you know, where this all started. So I think one thing that I love doing is kind of just digging a little bit into, you know, your influences, sorry, influences and passions in life, actually. So as in, if I'm not mistaken, uh, did you grow up in Belgium as well? And do you remember if there's any kind of like techie influence even back then? Most of my life was uh, spent in Belgium. Uh, actually, I was born in the US. I was born in uh, New York State, uh, in Westchester County, if you're interested. Um, uh, but we moved back pretty early on. My dad was uh, in research and development at Philips, and he had a job in, in the US for, I think, three, four years or something. Um, then we moved back to Belgium around the same place where we lived, uh, pretty close to the, the headquarters of the company where I was working. Uh, it's Philips, uh, which you might know, uh, which is headquartered in Eindhoven, which is in the Netherlands. And we would live a bit across the border, like half an hour drive um, in Belgium. But then at some point he got restationed in Aachen, which is in Germany. And then we lived also in Belgium, uh, just across the border, also about a half an hour drive. Uh, from Aachen in the French-speaking part of Belgium, because I'm actually from the, the Dutch-speaking part. Um, I did my kindergarten and uh, primary school, well, the, the first year at least, I did in French. Then we moved back, because my dad moved back to Eindhoven again, um, and uh, was back to Dutch. Uh, we lived in uh, a town, let's say in the province of Antwerp, where I live now. Uh, I spent most of my life there, then moved around a little. I, I studied in a, a place close to Brussels called Leuven. Uh, I studied in Milan and Italy also for a bit. Uh, and then went to live in Brussels actually and now live in Antwerp. Now, along the way, 
I think the biggest tech influence for me was was probably my dad, uh, at least from very early on. I could remember we, we, we had a computer and most people didn't have a computer yet. Uh, it would be this, this thing which was basically almost like a television screen attached to something that looked a bit like a... Uh, which it was actually um, a thing with uh, music tapes because the computer would um, would start based on that tape. So on the tape would be a sort of, I think in sound, I don't really know how it works. Uh, there was a, a, st- a startup sequence and then uh, the thing would, would, would start and then you had a very early sort of uh, non-graphical uh, all, all command line uh, interface. Uh, it was, was way pre uh, Windows 95, of course. Um, I think the first time I played with a computer must must have been in um, in uh, well, there's pictures of me probably in 80s, 87 already uh, playing with computers. I I uh, I found back some high scores from back in the day where I I played uh, asteroids and had this immense scores which I could never beat again. I always like building stuff. It was not necessarily technical. Uh, could be anything. I like just drawing. I did some drawing classes. I like mm-hmm. just uh, creating anything. In Dutch, we would say knutselen. I have, I have no idea how you how you, how you translate it well in, into English. Um, I would build camp in, camps in the woods. Uh, I would build. Uh, Think about making catapults and all that. This kind of stuff could could keep me up at night uh, during vacations, even. Um, but then, where I think the first time this turned a little entrepreneurial um, was when I when I discovered the joy of building websites. Um, it all started with these sort of GeoCities types web- websites. I don't know how old you are. It was like. Uh, imagine Squarespace or Wix now, but then very, 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 very basic. Uh, basically, you have a, a thing in which you can build a site. Uh, and it was super simple, and the sites were <laughs> extremely simple. Like, you put some text here. Uh, an image was already a little crazy. Uh, you could have this little uh, ticker uh, over your screen, perhaps. A, a, a counter at the bottom, which counted how many people went to your site. You know, uh, it was this era. Um, and uh, me and my friends, we would all have this little uh, GeoCity site and then we would have our, our email addresses, which were usually with very weird nicknames. Uh, and then we, we started like little uh, email newsletters and I, know, I don't know what. It was this, <laughs> this very early era where, you know, like you would, you would first download MP3s. And that was crazy, and it would take you an hour or something uh, those those days. But then that very quickly evolved, actually. And uh, where I started building real websites was when Flash like became really popular. So so Flash nowadays uh, is also dead, uh, but back in the day it was all the rage because with HTML you you could almost not do anything like all the things people sold now with HTML5 it wasn't possible so you would you would do it with flash um and i would build this really beautiful stuff in flash that moved and if you clicked on something that something happened you like you could you go totally crazy so i built a few websites uh first for myself I built one for my mom as an architect and uh, for some other people and 
that that started feeling like wow i'm creating stuff here uh, i'm getting money for it and uh, one day this could be my job that's really how i felt like i i will have a web agency um at the same time i was really passionate about uh, cell phones and um i started building this into a little business so i would like buy cell phones mainly in the uk and in germany um and then i would resell them in belgium basically find some at the cheaper price sell them at the higher price um sometimes swap out the covers that was still a thing back then where like every phone had a had a had a cover and if it were a little broken or something you could just put a new cover uh but nowadays is a bit harder actually towards going to university i thought that i was going to become a software engineer uh like you i went to the open day i went looking at all the different uh, exhibitions they had and then i thought man these software engineers are nerdy and what they're displaying is so out of the world that i figured like no i'm i'm not going to become a software engineer uh it's not my thing uh so i did become an engineer but i um went through first electronical engineering and business management which admittedly is is as nerdy i guess but then from there specialized in biomedical engineering still very much on the electronical side so um my thesis was about biomedical signal processing i was detecting sleep apnea from the the heart signal then when i went applying for jobs i sort of knew that i wanted to start my own company but i didn't feel like um i had enough experience and i was going to get a job but i didn't want to get a job that was that was me in a back room building something not talking to customers i absolutely didn't want to do that i wanted to work with people solve their problems and all of the jobs i got offered were were more like the the backroom type uh sort of job so i was really frustrated after a lot of these interviews and i said okay well if 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 that's the way it works i cannot get a job with customers i will do business school i applied for business school one night got in and i did that for a year which then made that i uh, completely switched focus or career or whatever i uh became a marketer <laughs> uh so i i actually started in a pharma company as a marketer with the idea that this would give me all the necessary background um to become an entrepreneur because i would put a, a product in the market i thought um uh, i would i thought i would have the responsibility over that that was completely wrong i i almost had no uh saying how that would happen at all because i was just uh you know like a marketer in a local office who just followed whatever the the, the regional office had decided um just make a brochure and and teach the salespeople how to use it and maybe spin up a little site or something so i got incredibly disappointed by that and while again looking for uh, stuff i could start um i figured i i was good in in websites nobody in the farm marketing was i was helping everyone uh, i i figured i was i i kind of understood farm marketing after a few months <laughs> i thought at least so i figured why don't i do that uh, i do digital marketing for the farm industry then coincidentally i had uh dinner with a guy who had a company that did that uh, and i joined his company and that's where i learned most of my um 
skills as an entrepreneur, you would say, early skills, was being an account manager at a consultancy. That was a really great experience because I would find customers, I would find out what their issues were, I would come up with proposals, budgets, project plans, make sure that those happened. The whole thing, um, often until getting them to pay and all that. So um, it taught me a lot of the necessary skills to then start my own company afterwards. And I then uh, uh, tried a few. I can still go into that, but there was like, I, I tried starting a, an online medical uh, research reader for doctors, which failed because I, I thought I was going to do it with ads, but ads are a terrible uh, business model to start off with unless you have a ton of money. Uh, and, as, and you need volume. Uh, then I started a website. Um, just I thought I could I could spin up a website and have ads on that. Still on the ads thing um, uh, for the the World Cup in Brazil. Uh, how you could uh, make a trip around that. Actually, I, I did make some some pretty okay money with it um, because I was referring people to flight sites, and then I got like a percentage on that. So it was I think eight percentage eight percent on a flight uh, every time someone booked. So that was a good amount of money um but the thing was as soon as the world cup was over the website died so it was a terrible idea um i then uh, co-founded the company that was in um uh, a company that helped nurses follow up pacemakers of patients uh, we made a we made a dashboard on top of a lot of data i went out of that company it was it was a company we started a startup weekend and it, um, let's say you're a bunch of guys who go to a startup weekend, you win the startup weekend. Then there's somebody of the government there that says, well, if you, if you pitch there, you might get some money. You do that, you get the money. And then you're like with a bunch of guys, you have money and you're like, what, what are we going to do now? <laughs> Everybody has jobs. Nobody's really committed. And at some point when I was, uh, Looking at all the stuff I was doing, I, I just crapped that uh, project. I said, well, that's if you guys go on without me. Uh, by now, the, the company has raised many millions, uh, but I'm not involved anymore, uh, unfortunately, uh, from the financial standpoint. But um, What actually happened is that uh, a guy that I met when I was working on that first uh, startup company I mentioned, the, the medical research thing, um, he calls me and he says, well, you know, I'm going to Vegas to a conference with my software company uh, and we still need a sales guy. Do you want to join? Um, and we did that and we had a, a, a really good amount of leads at the conference and we got really excited about that. But then we had to close these uh, deals still, of course. And that's sort of also then where Salesforce began um, because trying to close these leads wasn't easy. There was a whole lot of follow-up uh, uh, needed and we had a bit over 100 uh, interested leads. And we didn't actually find any software that properly helped us. Uh, I, I had a lot of experience using Salesforce, um, which is the the major CRM in the market, they control about 20% uh, today on the market. Um, it's what we use with pharma companies when I was a consultant. It's what we use internally. 
but it's not really a practical tool uh, for sales follow-up. It's really great for enterprises if you want to build uh, whatever system you want, but it's not really great uh, as an end user. So we looked at lots of other systems, found some that were really built for sales follow-up, but none of them actually kept working for us in the sense that we always stopped using them. And then we, we, we figured why, and it was actually because we just needed to do so much data input and the expectations that um, were imposed by the software were so high that we would always stop at some point. Um, and that meant then also that it's, it's not just stopping to use the CRM system, it's your whole sales follow-up system that falls apart. Um, so leads start slipping through the cracks, uh, you start uh, saying stuff to people uh, that that were already discussed somewhere, you know, and, and you start disappointing people. Uh, so we were really looking for a good solution. We didn't find any, and then we figured actually, what if there would be a system that would um, just fill out itself? Uh, because most of the information we were putting in the CRM was already digital somewhere. We figured we could pull it together somehow. So we could get the stuff out of your emails, out of your calendar, out of your phone, out of company databases, tracking, uh, you name it, email signatures, and just um, combine all that automatically, show the information, and and have some sort of automated tracking system. And uh, that that was when uh, when Salesforce started, and that's now uh, uh, I think the idea seven and a half years ago, almost to the day. That's incredible. I mean. Thanks for sharing that story. I mean, we could definitely see the evolution, as you were saying, because if we look back at, oh, back in the days when I was building these websites, like, sure, you can still build websites, but that's definitely like just a tiny part of your whole role and your whole project today, which is always super, super fascinating. And then when you're kind of breaking down how you got to these problems and how you're trying to solve it, not only are you a single founder, but you've been the serial founders for the past couple of years. That is another fascinating thing. I actually want to break down a lot of this stuff, if you don't mind me, because that's like kind of my software engineering slash geeky brain going on. First thing first, back then though, it's really fun with the influence that since your dad is already involved with like this Philips company, and obviously everybody knows Philips Engineering, and then they also have a lot of research going on that's really, really popular. But the fascinating bit is when you talk about languages, I just want to talk that real quickly. Um, so how many languages do you speak today just from jumping from so many places? Because I do know that has an influence in terms of like, eye-opening into the world. Uh, where would I place the cutoff? Yeah. Let's say, let's, let's say six. But it's it's not a super abnormal thing. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely above average in Belgium, but in Belgium, uh, standard people are all, I mean, have four languages at school at least. Um, so at least in the Dutch-speaking part of Belgium, we, we have Dutch since we're a kid, of course, and at school from, the, from when we're six. We have French from when we're 10, uh, we have English from when we're 14, and we have German from when we're 16. Um, Dutch and French are official languages, and German also sort of. Uh, it's a small part of Belgium where that is the official language as well. Not only is that really, really cool with the languages, just because today maybe you will encounter cases where not only is your product designed for, obviously there's the English speaking crowd, but there's always a chance where at any moment you can also adapt and really figure out not only, as I was saying, just your country, but also a little bit on the international level to adapt to more, you know, clients at the end of the day, which is why it's really, really fascinating. 
That that's a funny thing because we we could definitely do that. We're really strong at different languages, but uh, so far Salesforce is in, in English, and we're really popular in all English speaking countries. Like the US is our main market, and then the UK is the second one, and we're big in Australia and India and Malaysia and you know all those kind of places. Um, we we haven't actually gotten to translation yet. Uh, it also adds a whole new level of complexity. Now we can really nail uh, the copy in the in the in the application, for instance. And then when we need to do that across many languages, then it becomes a little uh, fuzzy and it's more work and all that. But uh, I think it's inevitable that one day it's going to happen. Of course, yeah. There's always work to do, as we say, in the world of tech. <laughs> it's just so good that the opportunity and the flexibility is there. And also, when you're mentioning all those different crowds around the world, they're very, very different, I guess, target audience. But at the end of the day, you manage to have a product that really appeals to somehow everybody. So um, I will dive into Salesforce in just a little bit, just because it's always fascinating to figure out, you know, how did it even start? Did you do that in a single day or what? But one thing that um, I can relate, actually, is back then when you're saying building websites, as I was saying, I'm so glad you mentioned like Windows 95 and all those machines, even the tape machine. I could visually see what that looks like back then and how you have to interact with the user interface. Uh, not even, sorry, you didn't even have a user interface. You have to interact with the command line to get anything through. Um, so my, I'm just going to throw a little anecdote. Is that when I, the first time I ever built my first website in quotation mark was that this was in grade maybe like nine, eight or nine. So I was maybe about like 13, 14. There was this one session that I think the math teacher introduced us. It's basically, hey, look, we're going to build a file. We're going to name it as a .html and we're going to drag it and put it into a browser. And that's the official first website I've ever made. It wasn't similar to that, was it? You already mentioned some GeoCities. Because like, people are familiar with Squarespace. People are familiar with like WordPress, for example. Those are like website builder were you directly like hands-on even back then writing like HTML like and putting into a little file and just whether you use it SFTP into somewhere or how did that look like? Because that's kind of where my geeky engineering break kind of comes in. I think it, it was relatively complicated. Uh, I think I had a place where you could get like this free hosting because I mean, I was, I was young, I, I only free, so... Um, and then uh, I would indeed FTP in there and then drag some files and then, yeah, first of all, you, you know, still the way it works today, but a, a bit more complicated uh, in general. Um, I, 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 I do have some basic knowledge of HTML. I'm definitely not a, an HTML guru or something. I was way better actually at the Flash part back then at least, like the, the action script in Flash and all that. GeoCities itself was 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 very very easy to use, very remarkable for something so early on the internet. How easy you can make a website. I mean, it, of course, it didn't do much. A lot of people just built their, their, these very simple websites. And even that concept of GeoCities is still living today, even though it's not exactly the same company as that. Conceptually, they had a great concept. And then it is one of these concepts that kind of lives through time where you make a hard problem, which is back then probably making a website and make it easier for you and me, anybody to be able to access it. And that's usually where curiosity comes from at the end of the day, where you have these people that are creating tools that, you know, pique people's curiosity. And then it kind of just propels you on your path today from the appeal of, you know, I want to make websites. But next thing you know, you get gone into the whole marketing space and then 
today, more than just marketing and engineering after. Just a little asterisk as well, when you're saying free hosting, till today, I still try to find any student way possible of getting free hosting. Whether it's free domain names or free like database storage, I still think even years and years and years later, or even people in university or school today still think about the same thing where it's like, where can I get free hosting? And if you probably look at Google or something else, we're one of the most searched term out there, which is really, really funny at the end of the day. Um, one of the note that you did mention that it's actually really funny because you ended up getting into engineering in university. And then the next point that you brought up after is working with people. And one of the thing, one of the thing in my mind, at least, it's like two complete opposite world, right? I thought at least in, in, well, at least I don't know, I'm going to speak for me at the end is that like when I got into engineering, so I went to comp side during university, um, the expectation was that I was not working with people. And then I'm pretty sure going into any kind of engineering, biomedical engineering, electrical engineering, mechanical engineering, that was the assumption. But you did have the drive back then to still want to work with people. Did you do anything, I guess, during your university days to complement that? So I think you mentioned that you had a minor in business. So did that actually help with the, I guess, balance of, of course, you have the engineering load, which is very, very focused on, you know, just technical work and building stuff. But then you were trying to complement as much the other side of talking to people. So how did that other side look like of, I guess, was it a minor in business management, if I'm not mistaken? Yeah, but that was that was also studying. I think the, I was in a very active uh, student uh, residence. We would go out a lot. I mean, we were students, so it was easy to compensate the, the human side, let's say. Okay, so that's great then. Not only is that just more like natural, as you're saying, like learning a language, you didn't force yourself to learn it, it kind of just came naturally from being exposed to it. I'm guessing it could apply to this side of you that you want to work with people. That just came more naturally instead of having to read a book on how to work with people. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't read that book either. I'm just saying, I just, I just talk a lot and hope people that, <laughs> hope people like working with, uh, with that. So if we look at the timeline real quickly, what we're talking about, do you remember your first full-time job? Is that the, the marketing job that you're talking about? Because I know it's always a big jump when somebody goes into uh, university and spend a lot of time studying. There's the moment when you jump into like your first full-time, like nine to five, 40 plus hours a week job. Was that, what was that, like what company was that at and what exactly was that job? Yeah, um, on my first Full-time, full-time job, uh, yes. I mean, my, my first sort of job, the first time I got paid to was, uh, uh, I was working uh, when I was 15 years old um, in the, the McDonald's in Ireland, and it's a fun park. Basically, imagine the McDonald's in, in, um, in a fun park, this kind of place, a burger place, and with, uh, with fries and ice creams and sweets and uh, all those kind of things. Um, that was my first sort of work experience, you could say. Um, it's it's sort of normal in Belgium as a youngster to do some uh, some uh, work during the summer, uh, a month of the summer or so. You you, you do some jobs. Uh, my first real full time job was indeed at Baxter, which is a big American pharma company. I worked on marketing of. Uh, I was responsible for the vaccines of Baxter in Belgium. Plus, I would help two other marketing managers with the, um, because I was like the junior one, uh, with their products, which were uh, mostly plasma products for hemophilia and for some immune diseases, etc. And as marketing managers, we would mainly serve the sales team because that's back then how marketing was seen in a pharma company. 
it was the sales team that was going to talk with the doctors and the marketing team merely supported them. Maybe did something next to it, but it was mostly about supporting the sales activities. I mean, even till today, marketing and sales is very, very, the synergy is very, very prominent. So I think like the method to the madness is there. I think something works, which is why over the years, a lot of these companies still managed to do that. So at least you got that under your belt because it's really interesting for um, somebody that has an engineering background that really got the opportunity as well to work in a completely different department. Um, I, I can't even speak for myself that I've fortunately and unfortunately gone into the software engineering world that I've been stuck in it forever. So imagining me jumping into the whole marketing world or even the sales world, that'd be a fascinating thing. So that's why I'm so glad we got your perspective on how that happened and what, you know, what built up to, to today. Um, so that's always great to hear about your first full-time job because that's obviously very impactful to everybody. Um, let's talk about your first full-time founding project because I'm so glad that you mentioned that you did so many of them. And then when you're talking about, um, if I was thinking it was the medical research paper one, aggregator, I don't even, if you even know if it's the right word to, to say it. Like, how do you start a project? Or did you have to give up your full-time job to do that? Or those are usually the questions that you would see when somebody's like, all right, I'm founding a project, or they don't even say it. They're like, I'm spending my, my full time working on a project. What is probably a two part question is, what drove you to do it? And did you end up spending, I guess, full time on the first founding project that you worked on? Yeah, uh, what drove me to do it is that I always wanted to start my own company. Uh, I just wanted to take, um, I think take on something myself, be accountable, uh, really be responsible for growing something. Um, when I was working in a corporate, I, I totally felt disconnected. Uh, when I was working at a consultancy, it was sort of okay for a while. Uh, but also, you know, you do a project for a client. Um, you might feel like you need to do it a certain way, but at some point the client is like, well, you know, good enough. Uh, we only paid for that. And you also move on from client to client and all this kind of stuff. So you never really feel like you, um, like you're really taking on something. And that's what I really wanted to do. And I was frustrated for, for a quite a long while. Like, like I want to do something, but then you start overthinking, like, uh, let's do this. And I'm like, no, that's not the perfect idea. And then let's do that. No, that's not the perfect idea. And then one day I found this uh, thing called the Founder Institute and they said, this is an accelerator. You come in with your idea and you exit with a company and you can only graduate if you have started a company and we will guide you through all the steps. You will be mentored by many entrepreneurs and stuff. And that was a super interesting value proposition for me because it was like, uh, I was trying to start one and they said, well, uh, I think it was 15 weeks or something, 15 weeks, and you will have started one or you don't graduate. So I was like, let's go. And nice. at first, actually, I got in with a... So the idea at that point for me was not uh, not too important, which is uh, sort of wrong um, because in the end, when you start a company, you need to be passionate about it. Um, it needs to be something um, that you solve for people you uh can identify with want to spend time with this is very important and it also needs to be like this kind of fundamental problem that you're really really annoyed with so you can spend a lot of time fixing it 
And the more time you can spend fixing it, the better an idea it probably is. Back then, I didn't think about it that way. So I was just like trying to find something. And first there was this, uh, I wanted to start a company that would automate um, the, the administration when you move places, because I was quite frustrated with that. Um, I, I pitched that to the, the founder of the Founder Institute on, on some sort of Skype call or so. And uh, he gave me a really low score for that idea. He said, well, it's really uh, shit. You're going to do it in Belgium. It's a really small market. Uh, I give this a one on five, he said. And then um, I was kind of relieved, actually, that he said that because I really hate uh, moving administration. And basically the company I was going to start was going to do that for other people, you could say. So... Not really the nicest thing to do then as a job. And then I started looking for stuff I could solve. And one thing I figured was that doctors, they want to follow research, but it's super hard because they're not researchers. It's a huge audience of non-research people that want to follow research. That's not how the whole thing is set up, like with all the the journals, etc. Because the journals are hyper-specific. You can subscribe to one, but then you, you don't see what's in the other journals and all that. So you, you actually want some sort of way uh, with which you can, across journals, find out for topics you want to subscribe to, what's hot, like what is relevant uh, to read. And that's something I started building then. Now, the issue there was that I thought I was going to get doctors to not do not pay for it. It would be free. And, and I would get ads in it from the pharma companies. But then you're sort of in a catch-22 because first you need to get the doctors on there. Uh, so you first need to build a product, get the doctors on there. When, while, when you have an audience, then at some point you can tell the pharma companies, look, we have an audience, they're active and stuff. And then you can start getting ads. So it's a huge bet. It was hard for me to convince someone to uh, to work on it with me. Actually, I, I needed someone basically to build it because I have some basic skills there, but nothing impressive or so. I couldn't convince anyone to do that. So at some point I was like, okay, I'll start building it, which then was the absolutely wrong move because, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I cannot do everything, right? It was a big project. Plus I was... By the time I graduated at the Founder Institute, I went part-time as a consultant. So I was working three days as a consultant um, and then two two to four days, let's say, um, on my own project, which was really heavy and building the thing and all the rest at the same time was just not doable. And at some point, I just I just gave up. I just saw that it wasn't going to go anywhere and I stopped with it. Uh, which is probably the right choice. I've seen many companies trying to do the same afterwards or at the same time, and none of them succeeded. So pretty happy I didn't continue with that. But what I would definitely recommend there uh, when you're starting a company, focus on people you want to spend time with because you're going to uh, be in contact with these people. They're, they're going to be your customers, uh, and you better like talking to them. Focus on an issue that's really fundamental, so that it's uh it's not just a feature it's a really big big issue uh, that you're solving and and you can build solutions around that that uh, can evolve that can can become stronger 
So that's that's really important because then you can really build a lasting company. And third, when you do that, don't just give up your job. I mean, you might be really excited about it, and that's good. But the chances are high that it's it's not going to work out. That's just reality. A lot of startups fail. In the end, it's all sort of experiments, especially in the early days. I mean, you don't hope that it fails, but chances are high. You can kind of expect it. I mean, you you need to you need to see it as a serious possibility. So if you uh, give up your job, uh, invest a ton of money uh, in in the development and all that, those are bad ideas. Don't do that. Try to minimize your risk to a certain extent. So I was lucky there that uh, the company where I worked as a consultant allowed to go part-time, which is then, then super handy. And, and I was able to do all that with, with very low investments. So I didn't, I didn't lose much when it didn't work out. As an additional tip, uh, as we're on this, your job is to know whether it's going to work as quick as possible with, a, with the smallest investment possible. Like uh, try to, as they say, uh, uh, cliche-wise, uh, fail fast. Validate quickly, I would say. That's that's really what it's all about. This is all amazing stuff. Um, normally, I ask the guests at the end of the show what kind of advice you have for everybody getting into it. But you actually laid it down right here, which I think it's so valuable. This is all gold. This is all platinum that people can use with. And one thing I can mention is that it's even more admirable to be even able to tell that even back then, not everything is a success. Like we keep on seeing the rosy side of everything, of where you are today and everything, but there has been a lot of failures, even for myself back then of what have I not accomplished on my way to, you know, being a software engineer today. So very, very admirable in terms of you're able to recognize at that moment that, hey, this ain't going to work out, but there's another opportunity out there. And which is why when you made the jump from being a, I guess, a full-time person into like an entrepreneur and somebody with the drive of founder to be responsible directly for a product, that is what's you know, I guess the reason why I talk to people like you, that's something that I like hearing people talk about and share. And also even people listening to that today, a lot of them are in that position. A lot of, a lot of them are considering to be in that position, position, sorry, to go from full time and be like, what's stopping me from making that jump to something? So yeah, honestly, thank you for sharing those story. One thing I'm super fascinated about is this Founder Institute. I'm going to compare it to Y Combinator. I don't, you might, you might correct me if it's the same thing or not, but the idea mm-hmm. is kind of the same when you're kind of pitching an idea and I kind of also like when you were mentioning how the idea doesn't have to be, I guess, like super important just because a lot of products nowadays or a lot of big companies that I guess recently went public didn't start as that idea. They had pivot moments. They had, I think Coinbase actually wasn't even this product back when they started. So there's a lot of good examples where you were saying, okay, it's not fair to say that ideas are not important, but it just happens that when you're in this world of entrepreneur, it's a little bit more bumpy and there's a lot of stuff that can happen. One thing I just want to clarify real quickly is that if anybody wants to get into these like founder institute or, you know, getting this learning or getting this something to teach you how to be a founder and entrepreneur and everything, was there a cost to it? Like an actual, like, did they, did you have to pay to get into a founder institute? Just similarly, just like in Y Combinator or? Uh, it's different from the Y Combinator. The model is uh, definitely not the same. I'm, I'm looking at their site right now because it's been a long, long time ago. So I have no idea whether it's still the same. I think at the time there was a test for which I paid a little money. Then there was um, an admissions fee. Well, this was a few hundred euros or something. 
Then there was some some other agreement around it. I don't remember exactly, but it's 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 not really like a um, a tech stars or so. I do know about tech stars actually. I think I spoke to another guest who actually went through that one, which is even funny. Um, but yeah, I I said Y Combinator. I think the idea is very very similar at the end where you come with an idea and they kind of I, I guess force slash push you because you were saying by the time you come out of it, you have a company, you have something concrete that you could work with, which is why I think it's really cool. But why why Combinator and Techstars are different? You don't just have an idea when you go in those. You already sort of have a company. Fundraise did is really early stuff. It's not so much uh, a seal of approval or so. While these other two, they're like uh, prestigious things. And if you go in there, then it's sort of a sign that your startup is worth something. You're usually already much, much further along. And what they mainly focus on is um, getting to product market fit. Um, so that means making sure that your product is ready for scaling. That's more the moment where you need to see those accelerators. It's really about accelerating stuff. While the Founder Institute is more of an idea stage kind of thing that then forms it into a company, but it doesn't work on that step after that. Uh, and then there's even things like 500 startups or so. They're even further along. And when you want to get in 500 startups, you need to have accomplished a lot of stuff already. They're more about the, the scaling part, really. Thanks for clarifying the difference. And I think that's really appealing for people at different stages of their life, I guess. When you're at the stage where it's like, I want to have this entrepreneur, to, even though you have demonstrated you know, moments that you like that kind of space, having this a bit of push and help from the Founder Institute, that's always super good to hear. One thing that people talk about a lot in this, I guess, entrepreneur and founder space is founding versus co-founding. Um, I think something that, like when people say co-founder, like it's quite obvious that you are multiple people founding a project, but there's distinction between, I guess, two co-founders, three co-founders, like four co-founders kind of thing. I guess from your experience, um, what's your take on it? The more the merrier, the less the better? Because um, I mean, you're definitely one of the people that have good examples already. Uh, we're two, and I think that's, well, for us, it's, it's sort of good. Uh, I think three already makes it more complex, and uh, if you go beyond that, it's just crazy. I think one is really hard. Um, some people succeed doing it alone, uh, and they find good people to work with them, but don't uh, share the weight of the crown, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, you know, you bear the ultimate responsibility. It's always a little more comfortable if you can do that together with someone else. Um, but of course, if you make the crowd too big, then a lot of people uh, have a say, unless you really clearly indicate who has the final say, it, it tends to make things relatively complicated. I would definitely not go beyond three. And I think if you would actually check the stats, that will probably confirm it, but I, I don't have them at hand here. Like in terms of success rates of... Uh, a one, two, a three, four um, founder company. I love that because that's definitely something that I look into. And once in a while, that's that does show up. That As you were saying, I think two, three is definitely the sweet spot. And that's definitely a topic that a lot of people that work in startup, fortunately, I've worked in startup uh, basically my whole life. And you definitely have a lot of exposure to it. We talk about this stuff very, very often. And that's something that I could easily lose days on. But yeah, thanks for sharing your opinion on that in terms of 
you're currently co-founding with another person. And one of the things that we can note is that you don't pick anybody. It's just that because when you have two people co-founding a project, for example, it's because you complement each other in terms of different skills. From what I could tell is that like, ideally, you won't have two people, like two engineers, for example, two software engineers co-founding a project. It can happen, but your roles at some point will have to defer. There has to be some kind of complementary aspects to it. Somebody might be more outreaching on the ops and product and marketing. Other people will be more on sales kind of thing, which is why I think it's really interesting with all the characteristics. Um, you definitely sound like you. Well, I'm going to ask basically the story of Salesflare now. This is what we're going to get into, the whole project of Salesflare, because that definitely, there was a moment, uh, you already gave us a little bit of sneak peek of how it got created, but I obviously want to geek out a little bit more in terms of how long did it take to build? How did you, when did you go live? Was it a soft launch? Was it a hard launch and all that kind of stuff? Um, the first question is, what is Salesflare? Let's, let's start with that. So uh, Salesflare is a CRM, so a customer relationship management system. Uh, so a system to manage customer relationships, uh, which, which for most of our customers means uh, following up their leads and customers, uh, doing that in a, in a very well-organized way, tracking all the information like about the customers, but also the whole uh, set of interactions, because in the end, that's what defines the relationships. Uh, the relationships or the... the all the emails and the calls and the meetings and all these kind of things and little notes you have in between. That is really the essence of things. And then around that, you have all these other sales-related tools which which become a part of the CRM. So in our system, for instance, you can send automated emails. Uh, you can use email templates, you know, email tracking. You can, you can build dashboards on top of the data. You can whatever, lots of different things. I mean, the, the examples are endless and even for even more layman people. So if I had to explain this to my mom, I guess, this is usually how I describe CRMs. It's basically like you have your customers, it's fair to say it's mainly businesses, right? You're not selling directly to, I guess, any stranger like me on the street, for example, even though would that be possible? Actually, you know, anybody could you know use a CRM in their life, right? Uh, you could, yeah. Ours is focused on, on uh, business to business sales. They would call that a PRM, like personal relationship management. There's many of those popping up and none of them being successful. Uh, it's sort of a thing that it hasn't been, uh, hasn't been cracked yet. We focus on B2B sales. On our software, it's mostly uh, smaller, medium-sized businesses who sell to other businesses. And you can imagine um, a lot of uh, agencies, marketing agencies, mostly digital marketing agencies, uh, we have software development companies, um, we have consultancies, we have also a lot of tech companies. This means SaaS companies like ourselves, software as a service, um, but also uh, telcos like telecom and um, other sorts of, of, of tech companies actually. Uh, but those are, are sort of the main groups um, that use our system to then better organize their sales. So they have less work with keeping track while in the end they make more sales, of course. Yeah, I, I really like that. Uh, at least Salesflare is kind of presented as a industry agnostic tool. Because when you're naming all the, all the different kind of customers, they're all in different spaces and they have their own customers and the, the way to track what their flow is of each of their individual, you know, user experience for their product is manageable with Salesforce, which I think it's really, really cool because that's never an easy problem to solve to have a product that kind of scales in different industry. Um, uh, that, that means you're definitely doing something right. And 
Before I forget, big congrats on being featured on Product Hunt and G2 as well. I'm pretty sure you got definitely good raves and good reviews on it. On Product Hunt, yeah, we had a really successful launch, which uh, still puts us in uh, as a, a number one CRM and uh, product interview. If you go to producthunt.com and you type CRM at the top, you'll find us first. Uh, on G2, it's a huge site with so many reviews. Let's see at the current ratings. We're number 10 highest rated uh, in the CRM software. I must say that that page is a bit skewed towards bigger companies. The algorithms of uh, G2 prefer bigger companies because they have more money. But easiest to use, we're number two. And easiest to set up is actually where we uh, are the the number one overall. Uh, And this is across almost 700 CRM systems on G2.com. Oh, actually, 701 today. (laughs) I'm just checking now. This demonstrates really in terms of it's not just a combination of the uh, how the product is built, but also how the product is presented and how the product is used by other people, which I actually want to dive into a little bit just because I got the opportunity to right now. When we go back to the story in terms of like how how or when was Salesflare built? As in, if I'm not mistaken, it was about maybe 10-ish years ago. And what was the what was the laying founding work that happened back then? Like, could you describe in terms of like, did you build the website properly, like in the first go or did uh, your your co-founder build it? Like, what was the origin story there? Yeah, uh, it was about seven and a half years ago that we had the first idea. And uh, the first thing we did was brainstorming. Uh, so we, 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 uh, after working on the software company we were actually working on, uh, we, would, we would basically go through a bar, have some beers and then draw out our, our imaginary thing, um, which was was going to be a sort of system that tracked everything for you automatically, which then at some point tended to go in all kinds of directions. Like initially it was, it was the idea was to do it for sales, but then very quickly it starts, uh, starts getting this kind of marketing aspect to it. And then, then we always had to get, say, no, no, there's a lot of stuff for marketing already. We're going to build this automated thing for sales. And that's one of the reasons we added sales at the beginning of the name. It's partly to remind ourselves that it was for sales. (laughs) We actually figured that to be able to spend uh, a good amount of time developing it, because it was, I mean, it's not an easy thing to build. I mean, a normal CRM, sure, but one that's filling out itself, that takes like the automated data input as the, as the, as the standard and then also still allows manual data input, while at the same time it's also still understandable for people, was really, really hard. But the first thing we did then was uh, see whether we could find some money somewhere. So we saw this thing from Kima Ventures, which was Kima 15, where uh, within 15 days, for 15% of your company, uh, they would give you 150K. And I think it was euros, but I'm not sure. We looked at that. They said, read this book, which was getting real by 37 signals. We read that book. And then they said, well, send your deck and maybe a prototype. Um, so I started working on the deck. Uh, my co-founder started working on the prototype. Uh, we built this stuff. We sent it to Kima. And they looked at it. And they were like, yeah, it seems nice, but maybe a bit early stage. Uh, which was the case. I mean, we had been working on it for two, three weeks or something. So in retrospect, this is what we should have expected. But uh, we were a bit uh, disappointed, of course, uh, because we really wanted to get started. At that time, we then 
applied to we had the deck in the prototype anyway right so we applied to an incubator uh from a big bank it was called uh, study at kbc still around it's really big now back then we were in the second batch of startups uh, and i think from that batch we're the only surviving one up till this day we also applied to an accelerator also backed by a big uh belgian company uh, a big telco telling that kickstart we actually got in the in the um, selected 600 applied or something and we in the end were in the top 10 and we got some money that was actually the very first money with which we got started it was uh, almost peanuts um, 25,000 euros but it somehow convinced us that we could really get started uh, we actually hired our first employee with that money an extra developer and we started and that was in um, September of that year uh, 2014 while the initial idea was like in April May uh, around there in between the, this the one and the other we mainly went around presented it to a lot of people who always had a lot of skeptical questions we didn't really do uh, customer research at first which was which was not smart but at some point when we entered that accelerator they said well it would be good if you do customer interviews and then we started doing that. And if I would do everything all over again, that's actually what I would what I would really start with. Like you have some some idea, you think this is wrong in the world, this doesn't work the way it should. But then you you start looking at the world of others also, whether they have the same thing, what their context is, uh, what they're already trying to use to solve it, um, why that is working or not working. Uh, all these kind of things is the first thing you want to figure out because all the work starts from there. And the better you understand all this, the, the better of a job you can do in the end at creating your solution or decide that it's not worth it to pursue at all, of course. That could also be. Yeah, I mean, I'm just all ears at this point, but I love when you're seeing all these ups and downs at some point where you're pitching these ideas. And that happened in a very short span of time we're talking about months like months nowadays today at least like they fly by but when you look back yeah. at that scope of that couple of months i was like oh my goodness like I, like i'm speaking for you i guess like i ended up pitching to this many people with or we ended up pitching you and your co-founder to so many people in just a short span of time and then things slowly started working out in terms of good advices are flying left and right uh if you want to go do customer research it was a good, I guess, shout from from the people that you got positive influence from at the end. So that's always really, really cool. And even the concretization of being given a little bit of liquid money to work with and even hiring your first employee, those are all very, very memorable uh, for the journey of Salesflare up, up until today, I guess. Do you remember if it was a, uh, did you end up having like a full hard launch? Was there like, because that moment must be euphoric when that happened. How, like how much later after, I guess, September 2014, when you actually had a product going and then you had, you know, your first customer signing up and everything. No, it, it took us actually a year after September 2014 to sign up our first customer. Uh, like I said, it was all way more complicated than we thought. Uh, like initially, we were just like, oh, we'll spin something up and it's going to work and it's so simple. Uh, but actually to combine these things, to create something, first of all, that was really automated. Secondly, that was competitive as a CRM, and a CRM does a lot of stuff. <laughs> your minimum viable product, your MVP, already starts looking really big. 
And then third, if you also want to make that, uh, get it to a level that people can actually use it and enjoy using it, that's really hard. Um, so I think we started developing in September. Uh, we had a first thing that, that did something in December, but nobody understood why it did that. Like in your inbox, you could manage groups of contacts. We didn't have like the, the company thing fully yet groups of contacts and then you could it centralized the email conversations you had with these people next to a related email so a bit like uh there was Xopni back in the day a bit like that but then on on grouped contact levels that was really weird nobody understood why you built that but it was obviously towards the vision we had i think the first version that actually was good for sales follow-up that that one person that was not me also used passionately was probably in April or May or so of 2015. That was a guy at a student organization, uh, organization called Isaac. He used it for free. Everybody used it for free at that point because otherwise we, we had no one who wanted to use it. And uh, he really started organizing all the sales with it and it was going really well. So that was a first sort of uh, light at the end of the tunnel, like we're, we're getting somewhere. We got then more and more people to sort of try it and some got temporarily excited, but then missed some features, etc. The first time that somebody wanted to pay then was, like I said, in um, September, October 2015. And that was um, a Dutch company. That was extremely frustrated with the status quo, uh, which was good for us because then they were okay with uh, working with something that was relatively unfinished. Um, so they were on uh, Microsoft Dynamics, which is a, a big Salesforce competitor. And their sales team was absolutely not using it because it was too much work and too complicated. And that's what they loved about our system is that uh, it would basically uh, do the work for them and everybody would have good visibility in, in, the, in the sales follow-up and all that. Um, so they were the first team signing up with uh, six users, I think, at the time. We only had annual billing, and it was only on invoice. Uh, you cannot use your credit card or something. Um, that was our first success. And then, you know, the one client after the other started uh, signing up, um, I think by the end of 2016, we must have had 20 or so. Um, and, and that is when we actually launched, I think in uh, uh, November or so, we launched our, um, our, our fully online version where you could, uh, you could start your own trial on the site, but also you could uh, pay by credit card. Uh, up until then, I've actually guided every single person through the whole process, really from uh, uh, finding them perhaps or, or, or them finding us to me giving them a demo, uh, to me setting them up with the software because we had to connect to a mailbox that was complicated at the time, um, to then uh, getting some data in there, setting up some fields, you know, the whole thing. Um, I would always be there throughout the whole process. That was relatively heavy and work intensive, uh, but it was an 
an extremely important um, first experience for us because that made that we could see uh, the whole process together with the client every time with all the questions, all the the, the not so nice moments where we were a bit embarrassed. Um, but that really helped us to shape the whole experience the way it is today. Uh, while I think if we would just have shown, uh, uh, well, send people to a link here, do it, and then watch some, some, some screen videos, we would definitely not know as much as we, we know today about how to optimize everything. This is great because it kind of ties in a little bit back then when you're mentioning a bit of account managing skills, uh, just being sure to follow through and making sure that from their point of view, everything looks good. That's really, really important and extremely impactful because that definitely like if you have a snowball moment, that benefits it. And then I guess the grit and hard work, like I'm really just admired and impressed by all the effort being put into it. And then you could very much like remember every single date. Um, when this happened, when that happened, first client signing up, which team it was, how many people, those are all just great moments that you get to hear from founders, you get to hear from entrepreneurs just because you've lived through it. Um, I'm not going to say that's the end of it. You're going to have way more moments like that, which I'm going to early congratulate you on. Um, one thing I do love geeking out about is, do you remember the tech? Can you throw some like examples of frameworks or like technologies? Like, did you use JavaScript back then? Did you use, uh, did you guys build it with Python or C, like what kind of technologies, like when you were building this back in 2014, 2015, uh, do you remember using? Uh, we're, we're, we've been on the same technology ever since. Um, our uh, application is fully JavaScript front to back. Um, so in the, in the front we have Angular and in the back we have Node. Uh, and it runs on MySQL and that is on Google Cloud. And it's great that even, uh, it's a very modern stack. I know a lot of companies that actually even went public with that stack. So, hey, I'm not saying foreshadowing or anything, but that's the best wish I could ever do for that. And I'm glad that you share this because I obviously geek out in terms of like framework tools, not only JavaScript, but there's so many different integrations that you could use with nowadays. So seeing your journey up until this point is really, really, really cool. Um, one of the things that I do want to finally mention is on the, uh, what's the outlook? What's the outlook for Salesflare? I know you are very, very heavy on the product side and even the marketing side at the end. So what, what, what can we expect from, uh, from this project? Yeah. So one of the latest things we've added is, um, is, uh, an addition to our, our plan for the people who want to go a bit more pro the custom reporting. So you can now report on anything you like in Salesflare, which was a, a big step for us. Now we're building towards a more, um, let's say, lead generation capabilities. So we've started off as a system, uh, which is really great to automate your sales follow-up. Then we've been adding um, email automation functionalities, which also enable you to do outreach, for instance, from, from Salesforce. And then a lot of people have been asking us like, okay, but uh, we would like to see some more integration in the beginning of the process. Uh, where we're getting in touch with leads and we are currently adding, uh, well, we're working towards a LinkedIn sidebar and the very first version of that, which is a prerequisite to the LinkedIn sidebar is a, an email finder. So when you're in the software and you have a first and last name and a, and a, and a, and a company they work at, uh, it will, it will find their email. Um, then this will become part of a LinkedIn sidebar. So basically like we already have a Gmail sidebar where you open an email 
and it tells you this is with this company and these are the people you know there, you want to add them and it has all the other information. We will have a similar experience in LinkedIn. So you look at a person and it says, well, a person works at that company. That's the data about it. Do you want to add the company? Sure. Uh, it seems that you know uh, that person. You want to add them. Do you also want to find an email for this person you just saw on LinkedIn so you can like start emailing with them? And then that, that, that whole experience will become uh, way easier. Uh, so we start spanning basically the whole pipeline from the very first contact to automating emails in between to, to closing that deal with a, with a lot of good follow-up. That's a mouthful of feature that are, the opportunity is there and the work is there, as I was saying. And I think we're all excited to hear even more about Salesforce in the coming years. That is all amazing. And I do want to make sure I get the opportunity as well to ask you, for the people that are out there listening right now, do you have any final encouraging words, whether founders-to-be or people that are just really interested with the whole story? If, there, if there's any issues you're really passionate about solving, don't give up. I mean, it's all in not being able to let go in seeing that there is still something that could be better and then keep pushing and keep pushing. At some point, you'll have something so amazing that uh, that people will really get excited about it. And that's that's when you know you're at least making a little difference in the world. I'm not saying there's no other ways to make a difference, but it is a really satisfying one uh, in my experience. I personally absolutely loved hearing that. Um, where can people find you and Salesforce? Do you have any, um, I guess, links or social media that you want to share? If you want to find out more about Salesflare, uh, you can, of course, Google Salesflare, but you can go to uh, salesflare.com and Flare is F-L-A-R-E. Uh, you can find all about the software on there. We have a blog with a lot of sales tips and, and all that. And if you want to get in touch with me, uh, LinkedIn is the best place. Uh, there's only one person with my exact name. So if you see my name here somewhere uh, around the episode, uh, just type that into LinkedIn. Send me a connection request with a personal message, please, uh, because otherwise I will have to assume spam. Uh, but if you uh, insert a personal message, then I'll certainly connect with you and we can have a chat. That is so funny. I mean, honestly, I just want to say you're a very humble man at the end of the day and just want to say thank you again for spending the time with us, telling us your stories. This was fun for me as well. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Hey, until next time, I'll definitely find an excuse to have you on in that case. <laughs> well, until then, um, this is the end of the episode. And thank you guys all for listening. I'll catch you guys on the next one.